This podcast is brought to you by Molecular Devices. With its innovative life science technology, Molecular Devices makes scientific breakthroughs possible for academic, pharmaceutical, government, and biotech customers. Head to moleculardevices.com to find out more. Hello everyone, I'm Victoria Rees, editor of Drug Target Review, and I have the pleasure of being your host for this episode of Drug Target Review's podcast, brought to you by Molecular Devices. I'm joined by Dr. Jakob Haber, Vice President, Head of CRISPR and Delivery Technologies at Sniper Bio, and Dr. Richard Fox, Co-Founder, CEO and CTO of Infonome Biosciences. Today, we're going to be talking about all things CRISPR and its wide range of uses, but first, let's find out a little bit more about Jakob and Richard. So, Jakob, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, absolutely, Victoria. Thanks for hosting us today. My name is Jakob or Jakob Haber, and I am, as you said, Vice President of CRISPR and Delivery Technologies at Sniper Biome. Myself, I have a background in phage biology. I have a background in microbiology and molecular biology. And uh, I joined Sniper Biome approximately five years ago when we started our wet lab operations. And at Sniper Biome, I'm heading up the engineering department because Sniper Biome is using CRISPR to engineer bacteria in microbiomes. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, Richard, what about yourself? Thank you, Victoria. It's a pleasure to be here with you and Jacob today. So yeah, Richard Fox, co-founder, CEO, and CTO of Infonome. I have formal training in nuclear engineering, which is completely irrelevant for today's discussion. But fortunately, about 20 plus years ago, I managed to stumble my way into biotechnology. About 10 or 15 years ago, we had the crazy idea that what if you could engineer whole pathways in genomes? And so a number of us who are now at Infonome had this idea, but unfortunately, we were missing the capabilities to carry this out at scale. But fortunately, a few years ago, I managed to also, almost by sheer luck, become associated with a group of folks who really created a breakthrough technology for microbial genome-based editing, which we'll talk about here today, what that kind of looks like. But essentially, for the first time ever, you could now rapidly engineer microbial systems for all kinds of applications that we can talk about here today, including drug discovery and drug manufacturing. Fantastic. Thank you both so much. So uh, I'd like to start our discussion today by outlining what CRISPR actually is. Jakob, could you start us off? Yes, sure. So CRISPR is really short for clustered regularly interspaced short palindronic repeats. So this, I mean, makes sense. You needed an abbreviation for that, which is a little, little, little bit more easy to, to say. So this is really discovered way back in, in the 1980s in the genome of marine bacteria. So these clustered repeats of gene signals in the genome of these bacteria. And then you have spaces in between the repeats. And the spaces were discovered to be of primarily viral origin or bacteriophage, which is viruses that infect bacteria. And only many years later, it was discovered that the CRISPR and the associated Cas proteins are conferring adaptive immunity to bacteria. And I'll say after then a few years of that discovery, I think that was in 2007, you know, you found out that you could actually program these CRISPR-Cas systems to very precisely recognize DNA of both bacteria, which was done in 2008. And then, of course, where all the fuss is about these days in 2012, the seminal paper by Doudna and Chia that you could also specifically 
recognize and cut eukaryotic and human DNA. And this is really where it took off, that you could apply CRISPR-Cas to very specifically recognize and cut DNA. I think Jacob did a fantastic overview of CRISPR. So I think the only thing I would add is the precision of the cutting, creating this double-stranded break in the genome is central to, to editing. And then in many cases, you want to actually supply what we call donor DNA to actually, just as you do in you know Microsoft Word or any other editor, paste in a specific replacement. So it's oftentimes not sufficient just to incur a cut, but also replace something specific with, with your, whatever your intended uh, target is. Thank you both. So I'd like to delve into how you specifically use it in your roles. So Jakob, could you outline how Sniper Biome uses CRISPR? Yes, absolutely. So really all the fuss, as I said, about CRISPR has been in the eukaryotic field. And, and Sniper Biome uh, uses CRISPR in its native setting, which is in bacteria and prokaryotes, where it was originally discovered. And um, what we do is we use CRISPR to specifically engineer or cut DNA in bacterial cells to modify the microbiomes where bacteria live and thereby treat uh, human diseases with a high uh, unmet medical need. So one approach is to remove bacteria or bacterial genes very specifically so we can cut in the bacterial genes to either kill bacteria or to remove genes of bacteria. And the other approach is to adding in genetic circuits for production of therapeutic molecules. So if I may, if we look at the first approach uh, where we actually where we remove genes, and here we are specifically killing some antibiotic-resistant E. coli in the guts of some very vulnerable cancer patients that are at risk of developing bloodstream infections. So we do this by specifically targeting these gut-carried bacteria using our CRISPR that we have programmed to kill these E. coli. And currently, you know, the standard of care for treating bacterial infections is with antibiotics. But as you're probably very well aware of, there's increasingly rate of uh, antibiotic resistance spreading, so, so really rendering many antibiotics uh, ineffective. And CRISPR does not distinguish between you know, antibiotic-sensitive or antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So CRISPR can be used also to kill antibiotic-resistant bacteria. I think equally important is that antibiotics, even the narrow-spectrum antibiotics, tend to kill bacteria very, very broadly. And you're probably also aware that there's a mounting evidence that having an intact and diverse gut microbiome is fundamental for your health and well-being. So, so until now, it has not been possible to selectively remove bacteria from microbiomes. But using our CRISPR technology, we can now program these killing circuits to very specifically kill one bacterium and not another bacterium. Richard, could you give us a bit of detail about how you apply CRISPR in your work? Yeah, sure. So going back to the field of just bioengineering at large, protein engineering has really matured over the last 10 or 20 years. And we're able to do things at a speed and efficiency that uh, was unprecedented you know, decades earlier. That ability to go in and rapidly engineer biological systems or the inability, as it were, has actually really held back the field of synthetic biology, especially around metabolic and strain engineering. So we are really excited just as a field to be able to engineer biological systems, especially microbial systems for the production of all kinds of valuable molecules, including, of course, you know, human therapeutics. But up until now, it's 
essentially a slow, laborious, and expensive proposition. So you usually need large entities with lots of infrastructure, lots of automation, lots of people, instrumentation, informatics, a lot of capital and a lot of risk associated with bringing a biomanufacturing solution to, to market. It often takes five or 10 years and many millions of dollars. And so what this means is that there's a lot of opportunities that are left unaddressed because the risk tolerance is such that, that people just don't want to invest in, in the, the daunting proposition of, of, of biomanufacturing solutions. So if we could fundamentally change or radically de-risk or accelerate the progress of biomanufacturing, we could really unlock the potential of the bioeconomy. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of natural products that are out there with all kinds of applications that could benefit from, from a transformational shift in the ability to, to engineer biomanufacturing solutions. That's really where we want to play uh, at Infinome Bio. Definitely. And uh, that brings us nicely onto our next point that I'd like to cover, which is the advantages of CRISPR. So Richard, what are some of the main benefits and perhaps could you touch upon some of the recent advances in CRISPR development as well? Yeah, essentially at the end of the day, for many systems of, of interest, we don't know the rules of biology. And so if you could, at scale, mutagenize not just proteins, but whole pathways and genomes, you could really unlock the potential of, of the genome. So the importance of CRISPR now is, be able, is to, at scale, be able to precisely edit, say, a microbial genome, say E. coli or Saccharomyces cerevisiae, to be able to say, I don't want to make just random changes in the genome, which is typically what, what people do, or just a small number of targeted changes. But to be able to say, hey, I've got a whole microbial genome in front of me. Let me make promoter inserts or knockouts or transcription factor binding sites in a very precise, targeted way across the entire genome. And by scale, I mean hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of individual precise changes. And these edited cell libraries now with the technologies that have become available in the last few years now allow you to very quickly take these very rich, diverse cell libraries into all kinds of high-throughput phenotyping modalities. We often do direct tests to essentially get a direct readout of what the you know, analyte or product of interest is, but it's all predicated on being able to essentially be able to do global search and replace, right, at scale within your whole genome as a document. I think we are very aligned here, uh, Rich, in, in really in terms of specificity. There's a great advantage that's also really the key to whatever we do with microbiome. So, so, of course, it's a completely different approach we're taking, but we can also program our CRISPR systems to you know, as I said in, in one of our programs, to, to specifically cut bacterial DNA, to specifically recognize, cut, and kill bacteria, or even genetic circuits removed within a bacterial cell without killing the cell. That's something we do when we do this, what we call gut-directed uh, gene therapy. So I think really that is a great advantage of CRISPR all over, all across different uh, platforms and, and applications. What is really interesting, so I think the last five or 10 years, a tremendous advances have been going on into you know, really detailed understanding of how CRISPR systems function at the molecular level. And, you know, crystal structures are coming out of the, of the different CRISPR-Cas systems. So this has allowed 
some of the engineering into making some genetic constructs smaller. Some of the CRISPR-Cas systems can be cut down, so they're easier to package uh, into delivery vehicles. And, uh, you know, more specificity in the targeting and, and, and even repurposing of different molecules you can attach to your CRISPR recognition machinery so that you can apply other other functions than just cutting and inserting of DNA. I think there's so many advances happened over the last yeah, decade. So so it's, it's going to be very, very interesting to see what will be happening in the next five, 10 years. Absolutely. Thank you. So now that we've covered what CRISPR is and some of its advantages, I'd like to cover some of the, the finer detail and typical workflows. So just to reiterate, you know, at Sniper Biome, we, we engineer bacteria either by removing bacterial DNA, killing bacteria, or adding in functions. So basically, it's microbiome engineering using CRISPR. And what we typically start out with is to, you know, we have an indication, we have a target bacterium or a target bacterial population that we would like to modify or target, kill. So we start by there. And then when we have our bacterial population or our indication, we design our CRISPR systems so that they can target very specifically what we want to kill or what we want to remove and not all the other stuff, because that's really key to to our approach is that you can very specifically take even a subspecies of E. coli and distinguish it from another E. coli, you know, down to a few base pairs in a genome. We can program the specificity. So we start there. Then we design the CRISPR systems to be specific. And then comes another important part, which is uh, choose and develop the delivery vehicle. And then goes uh, test rounds in vitro and in vivo. We have, you know, a design, test, learn, a cycle going on for all of our, of our programs. If I should mention, probably at least for our, in our field, the very most important consideration, then it is delivery. So, Delivery is the most critical barrier, at least using CRISPR in, in our hands, and I think also in the eukaryotic field. You know, we need to use CRISPR at the site in the human body. So we need to deliver our CRISPR systems inside bacteria in the human body. And that's not a trivial task if you want to reach bacteria in, in the human gut, for example, where one of our programs is. So delivery vehicle is very, very important because if you can get in, you know, CRISPR is very powerful, but it's only functional once once it's inside the cell. So so that's what we've been doing and we are doing right now. We have two different uh, delivery vehicles. One is what we call CRISPR-armed bacteriophages, and that is what we have developed for our most advanced program. And and here we engineer the very specific CRISPR systems into bacteriophages and then have the bacteriophages deliver their CRISPR systems to our target bacteria of interest. The other option we have is to use live bacteria. So either we use live bacteria that are directly inserted into where you want the mode of action, and that could be then delivery of CRISPR systems to, to kill other bacteria that are close by, by conjugative delivery, or it could be simply by the bacterium itself to produce molecules of interest in the gut, to produce a certain therapeutic molecule locally in the gut. 
Thank you so much, Jacob. Richard, what does a typical workflow look like for you at Infinite Biosciences? Yeah, so I guess going back a little bit to what we talked about earlier, there's sort of the challenge. What is the setup before we even get into CRISPR-enabled genome engineering? So it often starts with making a small quantity of something that you're interested in. So it turns out there's lots of great scientific studies out coming from both academia and industry that can produce micrograms of something valuable or important. And that's fantastic. It takes assembling several or sometimes dozens of enzymes or proteins heterologously into your your genome of interest. And then you show how much you produce. And then you're interested in a commercialization phase. And it's that slow, laborious, and expensive part that we're trying to change with with CRISPR genome engineering. So in terms of the workflow, the idea is to be able to take that starting strain, producing often just minute quantities of that product or substance of interest, and design against that genome. And it could be edits going against particular pathway enzymes and the pathway of interest that's producing that, that molecule, or it could be scanning the entire genome. And it's both of those capabilities that can unlock the potential of of the system that you're working with. In particular, how that's done, I mentioned earlier sort of a massively parallel editing capability. But in terms of actually how it's done, sort of the key innovation that was discovered by one of our co-founders, Andrew Garst, several years ago, was to be able to say, hey, I've got that ability with CRISPR to be able to cut the genome, as we talked about early, in a very precise way. Then I can deliver a donor sequence to a particular cell that's been cut, but the ability to do this across, say, 10,000 loci was not possible until a few years ago. And the key innovation was to be able to pair the guide sequence that directs the cut with the donor sequence itself that mediates the repair. And it's this particular capability that now, for the first time ever, allows you to say, I can stare at my genome in the computer and say, I want to make 10,000 edits across the genome. And with a few clicks and an automated design and build system, be able to, in just a few days to a week or so, create these edited cell libraries with a, a fraction of the effort it used to take historically. Fantastic. Thank you. So... I wanted to also go into a bit of depth about the validation of gene edits and some of the processes and techniques that can enable this. We really do our gene editing or our the use of CRISPR is locally in the typically in the gut of human beings. So it's not like we validate our CRISPR edits in a pool of, of cells outside or in the in laboratory. But what we do is that we specifically remove genetic circuits or bacteria in the gut microbiome of these people that we are treating. So what we do first in vitro is that we, of course, we test the specificity of our systems, meaning that we have a broad panel of target bacteria that, you know, where we want to target a subspecies of a bacterium or even a species, and we don't want to touch the, the good bacteria. So basically what we do in vitro is we test very broadly across representative panels covering both the target species, but also outside the target species to show that we can kill everything we want to kill and nothing outside. That's what we do in vitro first. And then in our free clinical and also in our clinical studies, we are we, then we are 
uh, using uh, metagenomic sequencing to show that we that we don't disturb the microbiome, if you could say so. We only very specifically take out one bacterium and then leave the others alone. So we can show that by sequencing that we are that we are not harmful to the microbiome. Yeah. So it's a good question, Victoria. So it's worth starting with the idea that in forward engineering of say, microbial production systems, the primary interest is in editing efficiency. Off-target effects are, of course, critical for human therapeutic applications, as well they should be. In forward engineering of biological systems, while off-target effects could be important, they would have to occur at such a rate as it would diminish your ability to find some of the precise edits that you're trying to make. So largely speaking, it's not a critical issue for us. Having said that, when we do, say, whole genome sequencing, we find very low off-target effects in our microbial systems. So that gives us confidence that we're, we're seeing a lot of you know, the intended edits we're putting into the system. Then when it comes to the intended edits, there's you know, a couple different workflows that you can think about. One is to make the edits, and you have these edited cell populations that you then go on to phenotyping, as we talked about earlier. And then you can do things like whole genome sequencing on isolates, to determine which edits they carry, especially after you've done some phenotyping to, to find you know, what are the winning strains, the winning variant strains in your population. And that turns out for microbial you know, genomes with today's you know, reading technologies, that's relatively high throughput and, uh, and a solved problem. But an even higher throughput version of that can actually take place in cell populations where you're subjecting them to some ambient environmental stress, maybe salt or pH or temperature. Let's say you're trying to create uh, fermentation strains that grow better under low oxygen or, or some other environmental stressor. Well, something that's really nice about the way we do the editing and phenotyping here at Infino is to be able to take these whole cell populations and because of the way in, the edits are introduced into the system, you can, because it's plasmid-based uh, mediated editing processes, you can sequence directly off those plasmids that are conferring the edits to look for which designs are enriched or depleted in your selection system. So this results in an even easier workflow where you can look at hundreds of thousands of changes all competing against each other in a pooled population and quickly read out which designs are being enriched or depleted. And the ones that are being enriched are the, the winners. And typically we see like 1% of all edits, sort of irrespective of where the ideas come from, are being enriched in the population. So you can rapidly through next-gen sequencing see which edits are beneficial, and then you can take those into your you know, subsequent rounds of engineering to, to get to higher levels of performance. So I wanted to give you a chance to go into maybe a bit of detail about any case studies that you are working on or have worked on recently. Yeah, for sure. We had a case study we did a few years ago that we've since moved on from, but serves as, I think, a pretty good example of what, what's possible now. So we took E. coli, and as a demonstration case, we wanted to turn it into a lysine overproducer. Lysine is a critical uh, amino acid of the 20 that are necessary for life. It's also a tremendous commodity food additive in animal feed and other applications. And we wanted to be able to say, hey, I want to take natural wild-type E. coli, which ekes out just a little bit of lysine, and I want to see how rapidly I can turn it into an overproducer of lysine. So we sat down and we looked at the pathway for lysine biosynthesis in E. coli, and we said, okay, 
We have 19 enzymes, which is well-documented to be involved in the, the lysine bioproduction. And we said, what if we targeted each and every one of those enzymes in the lysine pathway by the equivalent of what's been known in the directed evolution community as full protein saturation mutagenesis, changing every single amino acid in every single protein to one of its other 19 options. This represents a huge effort if you were to done it, do it with traditional means. It would be like 19 enzyme engineering projects in parallel. It would take 19 teams, but we were able to do it with a quarter of a person in terms of the build step and create these super diverse libraries of over 150,000 edits. That's a cell population that went into phenotyping and we found all kinds of beneficial diversity across the entire pathway that led to higher lysine titers. So that was exciting. But what was maybe even more exciting was to say, I've got this ability now to train my edits, not just on a few enzymes in a pathway, but across the entire genome. So we also looked at regulating the expression of every single gene in E. coli with different promoter strengths driving every gene as well as knocking every single gene out. And this additional 25,000, 30,000 edits done at genome scale proved to be an extremely valuable source of diversity for lysine biosynthesis. And then once we identified these individually beneficial mutations, we were able to stack them very quickly with just one person over a few months and we were able to get to 14,000-fold improvement in the lysine production in E. coli. And this really kind of served as a watershed moment in genome engineering that now we can basically duplicate for almost any pathway of interest, whether it's a native pathway or a heterologous pathway, this same approach of targeting all across the genome to look for which edits are going to confer you know, uh, optimal productivity of interest. Just one question, is it E. coli you're using primarily, or are you also in other types of bacteria? Yeah, good question, Jacob. It's right now uh, Saccharomyces and E. coli. Great. Thanks a lot. So in terms of our case study, I think I'll take, I just briefly mentioned it before that we are in the clinic now with the product that we are testing. So we have this product called uh, Sniper 001. And uh, I mentioned before, this is where we have uh, designed CRISPR systems to specifically eradicate E. coli from the god of hematological cancer patients that are at risk of acquiring bloodstream infections. So really what we have done here is that once we have settled in on the indication that we, that we want to treat, we obtain from the relevant sources a recent and representative collection of E. coli strains from this patient population that we want to treat. So we make sure that we are actually treating the bacteria that are that are very problematic for this particular indication. Once we had this collection of more than 300 recent strains, what we did was that we actually did two parallel uh, tracks uh, here. So first thing was to design our CRISPR systems because for they, you know, the target bacteria are all genome sequenced. So we, we know that we can differentiate or how we can differentiate to other bacteria. So we, we designed our CRISPR systems, we tested them in vitro in the lab and showed that they were efficient across this whole panel of bacteria. And then the next, uh, actually in parallel, as I mentioned, step was to choose a delivery vehicle. And, and here we have chosen bacteriophages as a delivery uh, system. What we did here was that we have a in large internal collection of bacteriophages that we were then testing against this uh, panel of clinical E. coli isolates. 
and uh, and then we picked the ones that uh, were able to to deliver DNA to this population of bacteria. But I would say it's a lot of bacteria and a lot of phages that we tested against each other, and uh, and still it needed both rational design and uh, some tail fiber engineering and even some genome engineering of these uh, bacteriophages to obtain the desired host range so that we were able to broadly deliver our CRISPR systems as we want to. So once we have, once we had both our CRISPR systems working, you know, they were targeting uh, the E. coli population we wanted to, and we also had our phage delivery vehicles, then it was a, a matter of engineering our CRISPR systems into the bacteriophage and then testing them again against the whole, whole population of uh, target bacteria for both for the breadth of killing and also the efficacy of killing in this collection. And after that, you know, then we go into preclinical model and show that we have efficacy and so on. Of course, a lot of interactions with the regulatory authorities where we're performing our study in the US. So we have had so to round off now, I'd like to look ahead to the future of CRISPR and how you see its use evolving and potentially improving in the future. Richard, why don't we start with you? As you probably gathered by much of the discussion, we've been pretty inspired by what directed evolution of proteins has been able to accomplish over, over many years. And one of the things that first drew me to the field over 20 years ago was the invention of this technology called DNA shuffling. And so I think most people kind of understand, you know, the power of directed evolution, making mutations, screening for an improvement, and then repeating that cycle. That's often done in an asexual format where you make individual mutations, you find the best parent, and you remutagenize that, that new parent. But it turns out that sex is a powerful algorithm for achieving even higher levels of performance much faster. And the ability that was enabled through DNA shuffling of proteins was to say, hey, I'm not just going to take one parent. I'm going to take a bunch of related parents, all carrying beneficial genetic diversity, and I'm going to shuffle them together and create these combinatorial libraries, these very diverse sequence spaces. And that's the population that I'm actually going to screen. And it turns out if you do that and you repeat that over a number of rounds of the evolutionary cycles, you find that you make massive gains in improvement, much more so than you would get from a low, you know, a low dosage serial uh, asexual mutagenesis process. And that's extremely well developed and demonstrated in, in enzyme engineering over the last couple of decades. That ability up until recently was lacking in microbial systems. So despite all of this massively parallel single editing uh, technologies that we've been talking about up till now, the ability to now take not just one edit, say you find in a diversity generation campaign, take that into combinatorial libraries with now two, three, four, or more edits, you'll find that the rate of improvement essentially scales you know, geometrically with uh, what otherwise be a single editing process. So why is this important? I mean, if you think about making a production strain to produce lots of material in a fermenter, at the end of the day, let's say you need 40 edits in that final production strain. And these edits could be anything. They could be mutations and enzymes. They could be promoters. It could be anything. And often, and the whole reason you do this is you don't know which edits to make. But at the end of the day, let's say you needed 40. If you had a technology where you can only make one edit per round, it'll take you 40 rounds to get there. 
But if your technology through combinatorial editing allows you to make four or more edits per cycle, then it's only going to take you 10 rounds. So first of all, I would say, you know, the fact that Richard and, and myself are sitting here from two kind of very different areas, you know, in industrial production and in microbial microbiome engineering, it really talks to the power of CRISPR, I would say, because, I mean, it can be applied so broadly. So if I should look at from, from our point of view, uh, you know, which is, as I said, microbiome uh, engineering, there's really, until now, your options of microbiome engineering, if you wanted to remove a bacterium, has been limited to antibiotics. And that is very, very crude. So I think that is one place where, where there's a clear a future for CRISPR. You can very specifically take out bacteria and leave the good box alone because it's been so, I think it's been, it has over the last 10, 15 years become more and more obvious. There's mounting evidence that your microbiome does play a very important role for your for basically basically your health and well-being. So the ability to actually take out one bacterium, leave the rest of them, that's really one very important aspect. And then I think that I, I mentioned before that we also have the second approach at SniperBiome where we add in genetic functions, where we add in engineered bacteria that will have a therapeutical benefit by secreting or modifying the metabolome of of your microbiome, basically meaning that, you know, your microbiome is a lot, a lot of bacteria in your gut, but it is not the presence of the bacteria that are important. It is uh, some of what they produce, which are important. What we can do is with this other approach is we can add bacteria that are specifically producing metabolites and thereby basically going one step deeper in, into the microbiome engineering. And I think it holds a tremendous potential as a platform technology that we are applying. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jakob and Richard, for joining me for this podcast and for your excellent discussion. It's been brilliant to speak with you both. Thank you very much. Thanks, Victoria and Richard. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. Well, that's all we have time for, but make sure to subscribe or follow us on your chosen podcast platform, including SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts, so that you never miss a new upload. I've been Victoria Reese, editor of Drug Target Review, and thanks for listening to this episode of Drug Target Review's podcast, brought to you by Molecular Devices.